we continue our study on leadership, and, and it, it does strike me that it is every bit as important now as it was when we think of a regular uh, ro- uh, rhythm of, of adding new leaders to the church, in that uh, in seasons like this, how we as God's people interact and lead in our communities, lead in our neighborhoods, and uh, as we spend more time together, uh, serve uh, and lead one another in that servant leadership uh, in our own homes. And so uh, this morning, we continue with our look at First Timothy. We're going through various characteristics of leadership, and this morning, we are at a point where we're going to talk about uh, hospitality. And hospitality might often uh, be seen as, you know, again, in our society, just do you have folks over occasionally? Is there a sense in which uh, there's uh, a general uh, affableness? But in scripture, I would contend that the quality of hospitality is far more uh, powerful and far more important than uh, on first glance we might imagine. And so, just thinking of the church in Ephesus itself, remember, Timothy is currently in Ephesus. Paul is writing to him to encourage him in his instruction and encouragement and development of leaders within that church. And we have at least four different instances uh, where Ephesus is mentioned in Scripture. We have it in Acts, where Paul talks to the elders. We have the book of Ephesians itself. We have this letter to First Timothy and then we have, uh, rather ominously, uh, Ephesus being the church uh, that is written to, one of the churches that's being written to in Revelation. And the interesting thing about that last word we have on the church in Ephesus is that they continue to be theologically uh, very astute. They tend to uh, practice and function certain things well But John's grief and the Lord's warning for that church is that they have, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, lost their first love. And as we've talked about leadership and we talk about what the context is for hospitality, it is a loving God expressing himself in the building of community and in creating spaces where people can come together to be known and to know what it is to exist in the presence of a God who exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community, which by implication means what it means to create space for the other, the basics of hospitality. And so these characteristics of leadership, adding the word hospitality, is no small thing. It is fundamental to who God is and his character. It is a natural and right outworking of a doctrine uh, or or the application of agape love, uh, the idea that God is a loving God and a serving God, and that that love is far more than sentimental. It is a love that works. It is a love that endures. It is a love that comes alongside. And as we've talked about it, as it manifests itself in our leadership, it manifests itself in the ability to comfort to lovingly confront, and then to lovingly call us onward to follow Christ. 
And so with those things in mind, let's put the text in front of us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with a diligently keeping of his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be recent a convert, nor may he, uh, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snares of the devil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that we are connected by your spirit. We know that you desire your people to gather together physically. We are not a faith of either material or a spiritual world. We desire in this moment to exist in that space where heaven and earth come together, where the reality of a good creation that you made is reconnected with the spiritual reality that was never meant to be separated. Lord, we pray that we might know the reality of being in your presence, the peace of being in your presence. And as we open your word now uh, for a little study, we pray that we would know the application, the richness, the very present wisdom of what it is to be your children and to follow you well. We thank you that we can do this trusting in the work of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can do this in the sure knowledge of your love. And we pray, Lord, that anything that's said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, uh, I was reflecting on how many different uh, interviews I heard as businesses started to shut down in Portland, and I was listening to NPR, and, and uh, they were interviewing uh business owners who own several restaurants and bars, uh, people who are representing the industry of hospitality in various ways, and several of them became very emotional at two points. One, uh, their concern for their employees and what those employees would do, and second of all, their firm belief that what their businesses were doing was creating space for people to gather together and to share life. Uh, that they're, I think what had made them successful uh, owners of restaurants and pubs was the fact that they had an earnest desire, not simply to make money off of selling food and booze, but by creating space where people can come together and enjoy a good conversation and laughing and being able to meet one another. And for them, several of these interviews, they got choked up 
being concerned about what will happen when people aren't able to come together and to gather and to know what it is to uh, be together. And it's that spirit of hospitality. In fact, we call it the hospitality industry because it creates a welcoming environment where people from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different colors and creeds and socioeconomic backgrounds can come together and enjoy each other's company. And again, as several of you know, uh, I've been able to meet different people who some of them have come to CVP, just going down to the Growler House, and you meet the next person next to you, and you start a new conversation. Uh, that is, of course, what we desire as a community of faith, to be a place where people can come in, meet somebody, begin to make a conversation and fellowship. It's why we call the end of the service hospitality time. And we're grateful for the faithful service of so many who create that space for us to engage in conversation without rush, uh, with a sense of joy and with a, a sense of uh, purposefulness in building friendships and relationships. It is exceedingly important that we be a community that extends hospitality. And so it's not surprising that it's not only a characteristic of the community, but a characteristic of its leaders, because it's rare that a community uh, has different characteristics than those who lead it. And so we expect, and as uh, Paul teaches Timothy, notice whether these folks have a reputation of extending hospitality and creating space. It is because, of course, this is a characteristic of God. And so this week, uh, I'm going to go ahead and start in Genesis chapter 2. Then we're going to come back through unpacking who God is. And again, this is going to primarily be based on the reality that hospitality comes out of the generosity of God himself. God is a generous God. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We're going to follow that through and see in two ways. One, how, how this uh, generosity of God comes out in his grace, and then secondly, how God's generosity comes out in his, uh, well, uh, in his generosity of, of, of giving. Uh, not just uh, forgiveness, not just grace, but in uh, all that he has. So first of all, if you haven't seen uh, the Bible Project's uh, video on generosity, highly recommend it. Maybe I can get Monty to send a link up on our site. But they have a great, great video on generosity as a theme in the character and nature of God and throughout Scripture. But if you go to Genesis chapter 2 and you look at verses 8 and verse 16, God creates a garden, a garden of Eden. And Eden in Hebrew really means lavish. He creates a beautiful, lavish garden, and he makes every manner of tree that produces fruit. And in this garden, he doesn't just keep it for himself. This isn't just God enjoying his own creative act and ability in creating a beautiful and lavish space. Remember that word, because it's going to come up more than once in the story of God's grace. But, of course, he makes Adam, and he wants to share it with the man. But it doesn't just stop in his ability and willingness to give 
at that point, Adam, the jewel of creation in this lavish garden where they will meet and share, where heaven and earth come together, God's dwelling place and Adam's dwelling place, obviously a precursor and a picture of what the temple is for God and for humanity, a place where we connect what the church will be by the Spirit in the New Testament. But God also is so amazing, and you've heard me say this before, but he creates in Adam a need that he chooses not to fulfill. That in his desire for an environment that creates hospitality and relationship and community, it's not just the vertical connection with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he creates in Adam a need for one that completes humanity one that is like him, one that corresponds. And so this absence of the other, the absence of Eve, is the first thing that God says is not complete, is not good. And so he creates Eve. Again, the character and nature of a God who is so generous, so gracious, so confident and secure in who he is, that he can create a need in us that he chooses not to fulfill. I think sometimes when we reflect on how complete God is in his security and interaction, when we inadvertently uh, read texts about God's anger or about God responding to events in human existence as if God is trying to play catch-up, as if he might not be secure, as if he is in some way just trying to manage the best of a bad situation. That's not the picture of Genesis. It's not going to be the picture built throughout Scripture. Yes, if we read certain texts in isolation, it may appear for a moment that we have a God who's just hoping it works out all right that would not create a terribly hospitable environment for any of us. But far from it, we find a God so completely in control that he lavishes the best of creation on his people. And in the midst of that, creates a unique relationship, a relationship of humans to one another that he chooses to invest with all of the value and uniqueness that he treasures within his own relationship, within a triune God. He shares even that blessing of knowing one that is different and yet the same. And so we move from Genesis chapter 2 and the strength and the power of a God who is in absolute control to a picture of the consequences of what happens when humans try and take control of something that is far beyond their ability to grasp, all of creation and time and space. And in the fall, what happens is the ability to be hospitable to the other greatly decreases because now we have to not only enjoy the blessing of God or try and secure the blessings of God, but we're not sure what the other person is doing and trying to secure those blessings that we may want or feel like we don't have. And so it gets complicated. 
But these two characteristics of hospitality that God builds into the very beginning from Genesis chapter 2, first grace and then generosity. Let's be clear, grace is not just something that happens after Adam and Eve fall. There are elements of God's grace that have nothing to do with sin or death and will always be true even in the new heavens and the new earth. God is always gracious. He is able to make that which is good and give it to us out of his grace. It is not a consequence of sin or the fall that Eve is created. It is in his grace of what it means to create us in his image. There is absolutely elements of grace in one's deference to the other, in humility, and in diversity that are fundamental to hospitality regardless of the fall. There are going to be characteristics of hospitality in the new heavens and the new earth. Deference to the other. How easy it is without sin to think of others more than ourselves. Now it is full contact to not think about myself, to think of others' needs before mine. And that's true even if one is a pleaser, because then I'm trying to please so that I can get what I want emotionally. But just to actually love the other for themselves and not what I can get from them, whether it's affirmation or stuff, the deference to the other. Hospitality, we know what that feels like when we have been thought of, when we walk into a room. When our needs or our wants seem to have been provided before before we could even ask them, that is a characteristic of hospitality, deference for the other. Humility. We know that we have a humble God. He serves his creation in Adam and Eve, and we know that in Christ, and we'll talk about this later, he shows us that servant leadership, and particularly as we head into Holy Week, which we're going to have to figure out how to connect with one another during that important week, we know that in Monday, Thursday is about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, that servant leadership comes through a right understanding of humility. Again, I would say that this is seen in what we've already reflected on in God's willingness, his humility in creating in us a need that he chooses not to fulfill personally, but does so in the creation of Eve. And God is a God of diversity. Hospitality always works better when There's different people in the room. When there's that space where different people can interact, things get far less interesting and far more uh, bland. If everybody in the room has come from the same place, holds the same views, has the same gifts, uh, has the same interests, at some point, that diversity of how we come together makes all the difference. And again, in Genesis 2, God doesn't just make the greatest apple tree 
he makes an apple tree and a pear tree and a kumquat tree and 15 other trees and more than 15 other trees, not because Adam and Eve needed alternate nutritional uh, ways of receiving their nutrition. It's just because it's a characteristic of God and a characteristic of what it means to invite people into space, invite people into relationship, that there is going to be diversity in the best sense of that word biblical, in the best sense of what it means to enjoy the fact that God did not make us all the same. This is how we know what is truly a revelation from God and what is some human construct, right? Is that if everybody ends up dressing exactly the same way and walking in the same way, that's a cult because you're supposed to eliminate diversity so we can all be the same. That's not what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates diversity. After the fall, what does grace look like? Well, grace also then needs forgiveness. Jesus is an embodiment of what it looks like for God to actively forgive others, both in his words and in his actions. And I want to draw your attention to the nature of forgiveness that comes uh, so vividly and so wonderfully in the genealogy that Matthew, a former tax collector, which we'll get to in a second, opens his gospel. There are, in Jesus' family tree, five women. Only one of them is a good Jewish girl, and that's Mary. The rest of them aren't Jewish. All four of them come from groups who at the time, for one reason or another, collectively had lives and cultures which were not just a little off, but profoundly perverse, involved in human sacrifice and slavery and all manner of oppression of the other and violence. And God had said those folks and what they do will find an end. There is a logical outworking. I will withdraw my hand of grace from their humanity, which is a curse for God to withdraw his grace and his care and his protection. And yet, in each one of those women, Tamar, Canaanite, Rahab, out of Jericho, the entire town is going to fall around fall down around her and her family. And interestingly enough, in a household that was about forgiveness and about hospitality, a family that brought Rahab, the Jericho woman, into the house and married her, is it surprising that her son Boaz would also be a man who could love and embrace and care for Ruth a Moabitess, who was also a, a race and a tribe of people that had had more than one conflict with God's people. We know even that uh, Bathsheba, who's not mentioned by name, but Matthew's clearly trying to stress 
what David did to Uriah, but Uriah was a Hittite, which means chances are Bathsheba was also not Jewish, uh, but probably a Hittite woman as well. Why am I belaboring this point? Well, hopefully you can already see in Matthew's genealogy, hospitality, Tamar being brought back in, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba restored to a measure of dignity even after the tragedy and horror of what David does. That God makes a hospitable place for all of those women. We could go through the rest of the genealogy and a few of the names that we know from other places like Manasseh, uh, a king who was the final straw that broke the camel's back in the judgment of the southern kingdom. He too finds forgiveness in the book of Second Chronicles. This is a God who restores relationships, a God who again makes friends of enemies. And so God's grace after the fall is absolutely about forgiveness. How do we apply that today? Well, again, what does grace look like in our leadership and in our communities? Are we creating opportunities where people understand that we have created a place for them because God created a place for us, that we show deference to the other? that we make space for them. As Jesus encourages, don't take the seat at the front, take the seat at the back. Show extended care for those who come into your community. The humility. It's not about not believing what we believe. It's not hiding who we are. But Jesus somehow, and you've heard me say this before, somehow Jesus embodies absolute truth. And yet so many people are gathered to him who desperately need community and grace. Believing in truth does not make us fundamentally inaccessible or repugnant to a world around us. Which allows us to believe that God can gather together communities of faith and relationships that are diverse. Because what we do is build them, this side of the fall, on the common reality of a need for forgiveness. Again, Matthew himself, a tax collector, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. He's sitting in his booth, and Jesus goes by and says, come and follow me. No one would think in that season, in that reality, to invite a tax collector to be one of your inner circle in a plan to restore the kingdom of God to Israel through the righteousness of God. Tax collectors were outside any hope of regaining their righteousness before God, of being good, faithful, covenant members. And yet Matthew experienced it in Jesus. 
to such a degree, and, and, I, and, I, and I have to slow down and say this, Matthew writes the gospel that looks the closest and mirrors the first five books, what is called the Torah, the law. Imagine what it would be like for Matthew in the graciousness of God to have a love of Scripture restored to him so that he could frame his own gospel in such a way that it embodies the life and light and joy of the first five books of the Old Testament. To have that restored to Matthew, he celebrates it through Jesus, what life looks like in the goodness of God. And so for us, what does it mean in our society and culture? Of course, it's going to mean economics. How do we have even richer economic diversity within our congregation and within the church in our country? Politically, again, we live in a divided time. And to the degree that the church is or is not creating hospitable place for people to unpack what it is to follow God faithfully with less soundbite and more conversation, where we start a hospitable conversation with deference to the other one's beliefs, not the fears that we've had drummed up through our particular news feeds. To be humble in whether or not our own points of view may have some cultural blind spots. To expect that for any culture and society to work well, it must be diverse because that is fundamental to who God is. We can't imagine a homogeneous society being at all useful long term given there's nothing homogeneous about God. And we know that if we have wronged or been wronged, the only way to extend the grace is to forgive. We do that in our community, economically, politically, racially. Then the church itself becomes a hospitable place and Paul's concern that Timothy recognized that we won't be able to do community. We won't be able to unpack everything I've told you about who Jesus is unless the leaders of the church are also living and reflecting and encouraging hospitality. Secondly, at least in the major points, generosity. Again, we've been talking about this uh, in our men's group with the Prodigal God, uh, Tim Keller book about the interaction between uh, the father and the two lost sons, the younger brother who squandered it, the older brother who sees his father as um, just a hard taskmaster, keeping him away from his own joy and fun. And again, the idea of prodigal is the word lavish. And so we start back in Genesis 2 and God creates a place of lavishness. And then we see now in Luke chapter 15 that he continues that imagery as the father, as a God who lives lavishly, who lavishly gives his son an opportunity to be a knucklehead by selling a third of what he has. And then lavishly looking and 
spending time waiting for his son to return and then extending not just a hand, but his whole body and embracing him, putting a robe on him and a ring and then killing the fattened calf. And there's this lavish celebration. And what he desires for the older brother is to realize how lavish their life has already been and to include the younger brother back in. Matthew unpacks it in Jesus's care for the the 5,000, which is reminiscent of, of course, of what God does in pouring out his grace and sustaining the people of Israel in the wilderness through manna and through quail and through water. We live with a generous God who time and time again throughout scripture pours out the abundance that he has and gives us more than we can imagine. And yet, in our weakest moments, we imagine we don't have enough. We don't know how to see what we've been given, which is what limits sometimes our hospitality. Can I really open that older bottle of wine or that nicer piece of meat or that more tender selection of vegetables? Uh, In many ways, to simply be hospitable, not to those who may be able to respond with an equally old bottle of wine or later on invite me back with an equally fine cut of meat. No, but to be hospitable and generous always in both the Old and the New Testament is to extend that not just to those who can return the favor, but to those who can't. We can never return the favor to God for what he's given to us. How then would we imagine that the right way to interact with one another is simply based on reciprocity? We pour out what's been poured in to us. We see this, in my mind, very clearly in a passage like Matthew 25 where the sheep themselves, out of the abundance of their heart, don't even notice when they're caring for the other. When did we see you? We know this is then a motivation not of self-righteousness, not a motivation to earn God's forgiveness or earn his pleasure, but it is the outworking of a heart that knows that it too exists in a hospitable place, a place that God has designed for our care. He has created it that we might be at home, even when we're at a distance. Jesus at the Last Supper, and this is one of the great difficulties at this season of not being able to connect with you and serve the Lord's Supper in the way that we would normally do. But it is, of course, the Lord's Supper which cements our understanding of how hospitable our God is in his grace and in his generosity. The Last Supper, he washes the disciples' feet, and they're all going to use those feet to run away from him in a matter of hours. Not just Judas, but all of them. Grace. And then he gives him himself. This is my body and this is my blood. You have the fullness of who I am. All that I am, I give 
to you. Generosity. It's not an example, it's new creation, because without Jesus, we would not have the capacity or even know what it is to live a different way. And if I had a little bit more time, we'd walk through Ephesians and see how Paul had already taught and encouraged the people in Ephesus about what it means to be new creations in Christ. That God has already given us a new heart. He's given us a new record. He's given us new resources. And all of these things provide the foundation for us to then be one body. To then be various pieces connected together. Hope you can see then that hospitality is just not sort of a sideline thing. Did he have you know, did the the elder have a few people over to their house? But do they create what God creates? A hospitable environment, not just in their homes, but in our community as they model and encourage us about what it means to make space for the other, to extend the love and grace of God, and to be generous. Again, to close a reminder, an encouragement, a hope is that this is the this is what comes from Christ through us to the other. And at its core, what that means is that God will never ask you to give more than he has already given. That God will never ask us to give more than he has already given. May we rest and that's sure knowledge. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd be gracious to the preaching of your word, even in this odd setting. Lord, we thank you that your word has been sustained through time and space. Lord, through your little parchments in the desert, through grand works in great libraries, and now, Lord, even uh, in digital form around the world, you preserve your word. But it's not just word. It it is alive. It transforms us. We pray that the words that remind us of how you have been hospitable to us would change us even now. That we might grow and delight in extending hospitality first to one another and then to those around us. In Christ's name. Amen.